It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Kat Timph. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Harris Faulkner. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, June 16th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Proposed gun legislation is taking shape in the Senate, and school officials around the country are paying attention to see how any new law may help secure campuses full of children following several mass shootings. I think that any type of protective, whether it be fencing and and locked gates or whether it just be more alert systems, I think that would be be a pretty good uh, deal for us. I'm Dave Anthony. The U.S. Open starts today amid major controversy that has some golfers in the rough after leaving the PGA Tour for a Saudi-backed league. This is free agency in golf for the first time. It is a major, major story with non-sports implications when you're involving the 9-11 families who've really come out against these golfers for doing this. And I'm Carol Markowitz. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Republican and Democratic senators have agreed to an outline, a framework on gun legislation. And the lead negotiators have said they want to have something concrete written out by today. He told Brian Kilmeade on Fox and Friends this week. So we've found a way to to come up with good policies, enforcing the current law uh, and respect the right, uh, the fundamental right of uh, law abiding citizens to keep and bear arms. The lead senator negotiating on the Democrat side, Chris Murphy of Connecticut, said this week. I think the reason why we were able to get this done is because democracy worked as it was intended. And so to me, what we've done here, if we get this passed, and I believe we will, isn't just about keeping kids safe. It's about responding to people's concerns that democracy can't live up to the moment. The legislation also proposes an investigative period to review juvenile and mental health records for gun buyers under 21, as well as investments to increase access to mental health and suicide prevention programs. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said he supports what he's heard so far. It's a step forward. A step forward on a bipartisan basis. On schools specifically, one measure in the legislation would invest in programs to help institute safety measures around schools, and another would invest in programs to expand mental health and supportive services in schools. I think that that might include, it may be exclusive to just providing more safety officers. Tony Reddick is the superintendent of Gadsden City Schools in Alabama, where a man was shot and killed by police after he tried to aggressively enter an elementary school last week. We're fortunate to have about uh, 18 school resource officers serving our 13 schools. And certainly after the events at Walnut Park last week, there was discussion about trying to hire full-time uh, SROs, you know, one for each school all day. Uh, that would be nice. Uh, our local police force is short, probably about 20 officers right now. I think at my recent interview, I said about 30, but it has been confirmed that it's more like around 20 officers there short. And so our school system pays for all but two of those uh, SROs. Mm. Of course, the, the local police department pays for the two at our high school, and we take care of the rest to the tune of, you know, somewhere around $300,000 a year. So any legislation that would help us to take care of that cost would, would mm. be well ordered for us. 
And aside from that, maybe, you know, protective equipment. In our high school, for example, we have an alert system where, where every one of our staff members at our high school has a, has a badge that they, they can press a button whenever there's a, any uh, notion of uh, anything disruptive going on in the school. One could press that button. We have, you know, help on the way, whether it's inside the school or outside. We're tied into our local police officers. So anytime there's a, a call, uh, our our uh, police station gets immediate video feedback as to what's going on in and around our respective schools. So we've got that kind of thing going on in our school system. I don't know that it's enough, but I think that any type of protective, whether it be fencing and, <laughs> and locked gates or whether it just be more alert systems, I think that would be, be a pretty good uh, you know, deal for us. Yeah, I want to talk to you more about that alert system and how it all works, as well as cameras, because you did mention that after your Mm -hmm. sort of incredible situation that happened at Walnut Park Elementary last week. uh, After all the mass shootings, a a man who was aggressively trying to get into the school was shot and killed outside of that elementary school. And law enforcement in Gadsden said he had tried to grab an officer's gun when he was confronted by that resource officer. You Mm -hmm. spoke after that incident and you said it was critical that every door at that school had been locked and you referenced Uvalde, um, that we learned the importance of locked doors. Can you talk to me about that? Because you said that the principal was highly alarmed Mm -hmm. watching this person try and get in. That must have been terrifying. Talk to me about the locked doors and and how that kind of was the first line of defense, really, it sounds like, in this incident. Yeah, well, let me first mention that, you know, that what you have just stated has been confirmed because although I have not been able to see it yet, my director of school uh, operations and safety has confirmed from having seen video that the entire event was captured on video because we've got cameras all around our schools. Our high school, for example, has 106 cameras, you know, uh, but the most important part of it indicated is that uh, we keep all our doors locked and uh, the only access is through intercom. Uh, once one is identified and allowed in, if it's a service person, for example. But what we're working on, because most of our schools are a little bit older, the majority of our schools are 30 to 50 years old. So we've discovered wow. that there are areas where once an intruder gets into that front uh, door, they basically have access to the whole school as opposed to the high school where they would have to enter a foyer or an entryway, large enough place where they couldn't uh-huh. get inside. So that's one of the things that we work on, trying to magnetize doors that aren't already magnetized so that uh, if we had to open a door in an emergency for emergency personnel or whatever have you, we could do that at the, at the touch of a button uh, while at the same time um, keeping intruders out unless they were able to get in because a door was left propped open or locked. So we, uh, right. you know, advise our staff all on do not prop doors open, even if there's a delivery being made. But uh, locking that door was crucial. The gentleman who tried to enter was not able to get in either of the, the three doors that, that he attempted to open. Uh, and it was, as you indicated, once he was confronted by the SRO and certainly had a chance to just kind of move on. But for whatever reason, he, he decided to, you know, kind of go into combat with the SRO. Superintendent, did you ever find out more about that person's intent or if he was even armed. I I know that his brother had told some media that he had some serious mental health problems. Did we ever learn anything more about him? From all indication, you know, he he was not armed, but until 
he attempted to remove the, right. the weapon from the SRO's uh, holster. At that point, and apparently, you know, he was, uh, you know, under the influence, you know, the brother went as far as to say, you know, he might have been on a suicide by cop mission. I think that was actually written in the brother's statement. Superintendent, tell me more about this. You called it after the incident. You called it a trial system at the high school. This this button that teachers can push or that staff members can push. Is that at a teacher's desk? Is that in every room? What does pushing this button they, do? Does they it alert wear, everyone they, on campus? Yeah, they they wear it around the neck. So in any place in the school, if something you know happens, uh, it's a two button system where you know they can press one button just for a normal alert. But if it's, they press both buttons, we know that it's an emergency, and um, the school will light up. It'll light up red or blue or I think yellow. Uh, so we'll know whether it's an emergency situation or whether it requires a soft lockdown or even if it's just a couple of kids into an altercation. Gadsden is using a crisis alert system created by Centegix, a company founded by a couple who lost their daughter in the Parkland, Florida shooting. And more schools are testing out this alert system in places like Florida and Nevada. It, it will be a, it'll alert uh, our safety office. It'll alert the front office. So and it, and it informs everyone else who has the button and um, teachers for example, would be able to leave their classroom, preferably our male teachers, if they realize it's probably an altercation between two students and they can get there immediately before anything, you know, uh, seriously disruptive takes place. Superintendent, you also talked about how that high school has cameras. I think in this interview, you said there are 106 cameras at that yeah. high school. Where where are those cameras? Are, they, are any of them actually inside classrooms? We have really a two camera system. We have cameras in our classroom, but not not for surveillance. In other words, we're not there to watch our teachers teach. We've, we've got that set up, but the teachers can turn those cameras off. And the purpose for that is if we do have a situation to occur in a classroom, we need to be able to go in and see. But that's the only two people in our in our system have access to those cameras. And not very many people know who those two people are. So in the event that we, let's say we've got a situation where a teacher has misbehaved in some kind of way, okay? We may not even access it then. I mean, we try to investigate, but in the event that there's a need to confirm a situation, there are two people in our system who can access those cameras. Aside from that, our cameras are in our hallways and they're in the perimeter. So we, see, we can see pretty much every, well, I shouldn't say every corner, nook and cranny, because, you know, kids can get behind stairwells and those kinds of things. But pretty much every sure. uh, open area in the classroom, we have access by way of video camera, as well as, you know, we can see some 100, 200 yards uh, away from the school as well in either direction. Do you think that this has a deterrent effect, this alarm system you guys have combined with the cameras? How much of a deterrent do you think it might be to some potential shooter? And if you do think it's an effective deterrent, should this be at every school? Well, I, I, you know, to say that it's a deterrent is questionable because, I mean, we don't know that the potential shooter knows we have those cameras. So it is safe, for example, an active shooter were to come. Now, they would notice that there are cameras outside of the building. But I think the biggest deterrent is that we've got SROs and their respective uh, police vehicles also parked outside of the school building. So anyone coming in, you know, for that purpose 
likely be someone who is already familiar. And as you well know, you know, the situation in Colorado, even um, Florida, Uvalde, it was indicated that these were like former students. So, you know, our current students know what our security looks like. Uh, and I would hate to think that any one current or former would desire to engage in any type of activity. But uh, from that standpoint, the deterrent might be that they know that our uh, school is well is well surveilled. There's been talk, you know, in light of school shootings of arming more folks on campus, you know, more staff yeah. members, maybe even some teachers. Um, has that ever come up for you guys? Have, have staff members even expressed an interest in that or or said we don't want that has that been talked about? Yeah, there was a slight mention of that, you know, a couple of few years ago. But I think for the most part, you know, obviously with a few exceptions, uh, I don't think our staff is interested in that, you know, in arming teachers. I think that's the main question is, you know, should teachers be armed? There's been suggestions that, you know, maybe you have some designated teachers who might be armed. It's hard to determine who they might be. You know, uh, this day and age, if you've got you know, teachers who probably would not want to have the weapons on their person. So therefore, they, if they were armed, they would have to be locked up somewhere in a cabinet, in a drawer. And then the question is, well, how would you gain access to that in a, a dire emergency versus knowing in advance that something's going on? And most of our teachers aren't going to want to go into combat with a potential shooter. So we'd have to identify teachers who, who might, you know, have that kind of uh, spunk about them. Uh, but but another concern in regards to that is, you know, what if the kid gets a hold to the gun somehow and, and they themselves may, you know, access that gun too. Now, uh, at the same time, I feel really confident in our, our uh, student population that we don't have anybody thinking that way. So I think in terms of, you know, the, the teachers having access to guns, I don't think our population has much interest in that. And I don't think our board would certainly approve of uh, designating any teachers for guns. We'd be better off just hiring more SROs in a case like that. Superintendent Tony Reddick, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Carol Markowitz with your Fox News commentary coming up. The U.S. Open tees off today. It'll be a real challenge. I mean, these are the best best players in the world, and it's um, the hardest test of the year. But Phil Mickelson has faced a much harder test this year off the course, mired in the controversy that's more major than this major tournament. Live Golf, the new league he and other players have joined, ditching the PGA Tour, a league funded by the Saudi Arabian government. I know that many of you have a strong, well, many people have strong opinions, emotions about my choice. Other star golfers like Dustin Johnson and Bryson DeChambeau have also joined Live to play in tournaments that give them much greater payouts. 
Other golfers have been critical, like Rory McIlroy, but John Rahm, who rejected Live Money, says... It's not my business or my character to judge anybody who, who thinks otherwise. Others do judge these Live golfers because of the funding from a Saudi regime implicated in the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi and for its alleged role funding the hijackers who carried out the 9-11 terror attacks. There's right now a divide in golf like we've really never seen before. Ian O'Connor is a New York Post columnist and is at the U.S. Open in Brookline, Massachusetts. There is major questions about where golf is headed, if the PGA Tour can coexist with this new live golf circuit uh, backed by the Saudi government. The PGA Tour does not run the U.S. Open. The USGA does. And uh, this year anyway, they've decided to allow the live golf players, including Phil Mickelson, to compete. And we'll see how that plays out down the road as far as next year's championship goes and beyond. What has been so far the reaction to that? I mean, we haven't had the first full tournament day yet, but what's it been like for them and the reaction as they get there and and see fans in the practice rounds? Well, so far, the fans yesterday really embraced Phil Mickelson, and he's been one of the most popular players on the PGA Tour for decades. So that wasn't terribly surprising. When it's about the golf, I think you're going to see that. Golf fans are going to support these guys, I think, for the most part. But listen, there are a lot of people in this country who are outraged. Obviously, the 9-11 families, the surviving family members of victims on that on that horrible day, have come out in strong opposition to the American golfers cutting uh, these nine-figure deals with the Saudi-funded league, the Live Golf Circuit, and other uh, human rights advocates have had a major, major problem with their participation and their business deals with the Saudis. So it's a it's a mixed bag. There are others who say, listen, President Biden is going uh, overseas uh, to Saudi Arabia next month. And uh, so if if he's going to and if the United States is going to remain an ally with Saudi Arabia and the U.S. government and American companies are going to do business with Saudi Arabia and, and entities within that country, why is it a significant issue for golfers to to cut deals, lucrative deals with with the Saudi back league as well? So, yeah, yeah let's back up a little bit on that. This live Saudi backed league. The lure for Phil Mickelson and all these others is they play three days in a tournament instead of four, and they can make a boatload more money, right? Correct. And by the way, the PGA Tour does not offer guaranteed upfront appearance fees. So the Live Golf Circuit has given Phil Mickelson a $200 million guarantee. Others received $100 million or more upfront. The PGA Tour, when Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods were in their primes, offered nothing, zero up front. So if you didn't perform and you didn't play to a certain standard, you were not going to make any money. Now, those guys certainly didn't go broke, and they made a lot of money on the PGA Tour over the years through performance. But when you're getting guaranteed nine-figure deals up front, that's something that's going to be a serious threat long-term to the PGA Tour. Yeah, and the PGA Tour has taken action. It's trying to stop players from leaving right so mickelson and these and dustin johnson they're suspended pretty much they can't do pga events right at all if they even if they wanted to right now that's correct and i think that's going to be challenged at some point in court one of these players will 
will take that issue to court. But for, for now, and here's the problem with the PJ Tour is going to face, David, the four major championships are not conducted by the PGA Tour. Okay, but one of the, one of the majors is actually called the PGA Championship. The PGA doesn't run that? That that is run by the PGA of America. A lot of uh, sports fans always get that confused. Uh, those are two different entities and okay. governing bodies. So the PGA Tour does not control any of the four major championships, and that could be a major problem to Jay Monahan, the commissioner, because again, if if they're not offering guaranteed upfront cash, and the live golf circuit is. And the big names will still be allowed to compete in the four major championships, which really determines legacy in the long run. How does the PGA Tour fight that? Yeah. That's going to be a very difficult battle for them to win. Back to the outrage over Live Golf being backed by the Saudi government. Several years ago, the PGA Tour expanded to China. It runs a tour series there that some critics have pointed out is financially backed by those with ties to the communist government. And certainly China has faced much criticism around the world for human rights abuses. That didn't stop the Olympics from being there in February. NBA player Ennis Cantor Freedom told Fox that fed into Chinese propaganda. I haven't seen any you know, brave athlete that came out and said enough. And I'm going to just make a scene and see, show the whole world that real side of China. So what's the difference between Saudi and Chinese atrocities or human rights issues? And those are great questions. And I don't think the PGA Tour has a great answer to those questions. And you could talk about the NBA doing business in China, a lot of American companies doing business there and and with with the Saudis as well. And, and the Saudis have interest in the Premier League in, in the UK. They own Newcastle, uh, one of the teams in the Premier League. Uh, and they've had they've conducted golf tournaments. Americans have played there in the past. And the European tours had events there in the past. So the people who back the golfers and their right to do this have brought up the same issues and points you just made. And and I think they are very valid. The live golf circuit is never going to run out of money. And that's a problem for the PGA tour because live golf and their financial backers are not, the mission statement is not to make money. The mission statement is through the association with famous golfers and athletes is to try to normalize that government and humanize themselves in some way, if that's possible. So they'll throw a bottomless pit of billions of dollars at this thing. And the PGA Tour, that's a, that's that's going to be a, a big problem trying to win this battle long term against people whose mission statement is not to make money. Okay, now so, here's the th- question for you all when it comes to live. They've only had one event so far and it was in London. The next one is going to be in Portland, Oregon, after this U.S. Open uh, in a week or so. They need to be on television, right? I mean, but PGA and golf, they have, you know, the Masters are on, let's say, CBS. You might have NBC. Uh, How is Live going to be seen in order for people to, to care about it? Well, the first event was on Facebook. I believe it was on Twitter, livegolf.com. But you're right. At some point, you need a network TV partner to carry this series. And I think ultimately they will. If they continue to attract fairly big names, though, granted, later in their careers, and and Bryson DeChambeau and Patrick Reed are the next two scheduled to to play. I believe they'll play in Portland. And then you'll have a, a tournament at Trump Bedminster in New Jersey. At some point, they will need a TV partner. But I think just the fact that they staged that tournament in London, it came off 
it wasn't a very compelling event. I'll say that, but it did happen. There were no major disasters. They, they finished the tournament. They crowned a champion. They gave that champion $4.75 million, which is far more than any PGA tour purse. So I, I think that was a victory, even though it wasn't on network TV. Uh, so where do we go from here with the live golf circuit? We'll find out, but if they keep poaching fairly big names from the PGA tour over time, I do think they'll land a, a network TV deal at some point. When I watch the U S open for the next four days, the commentators, are they going to talk about live golf a lot? Are they being urged not to does the golf channel even talk about live golf? I mean, how, how much are they going to say on television when I'm watching this event? That's a good question. We'll find out. The Golf Channel obviously is a partner with the PGA Tour, so it's not surprising that the vast majority of commentary on that network has been negative. And I'm not saying those aren't the genuine opinions of those commentators, but let's see how much it's talked about. I don't see how you can avoid it. This is free agency in golf for the first time. It is a major, major story with non-sports implications when you're involving the 9-11 families who've really come out against these golfers for doing this. I don't see how, as a commentator, as a network, you can avoid this story. And by the way, on Sunday, if it comes down to, say, Rory McIlroy, one of the most ardent PGA Tour supporters versus, let's say, Dustin Johnson, a, a live golf defector, that storyline is is going to be unavoidable. Yeah. There's no question about it. Yeah, and Dustin Johnson, of course, is a great player. Phil Mickelson has never won the U.S. Open, right? So if he has a good couple of days, it's all going to be about Phil. It's all going to be about Phil. And could you imagine if Phil's in contention on Sunday, which I imagine he will not be, I think just making the, the weekend cut would be a, a victory for him, given his age and rust and so forth. But if Phil ever got into contention on Sunday... And if he ever won this thing, that would be probably the biggest story in the, one of the biggest stories in the history of golf without question. I, I don't think that's feasible because he just hasn't played this year. He was in exile for four months, but I think it's a disaster for the PGA tour. If a live golf player wins the U S open. Yeah, that, that would definitely be not the script that the PGA would like tiger woods. We've barely mentioned him. We've mentioned him a little bit. He he did not take the money to go to live golf. He's also not playing this weekend. A lot of times golf and the ratings struggle when Tiger's not there. But considering the drama with live golf and everything that's happened in the last couple of weeks, this U.S. Open, do you think it could have a lot of great ratings regardless of Tiger's absence? I do. Uh, certainly Tiger, the Tiger effect on the game of golf. There's nothing that's ever matched that. I, so if, if Tiger were in contention, the ratings would be through the roof. I think if Mickelson or another live golfer, say a named golfer, Bryson DeChambeau, Dustin Johnson is in there and you have another star from the PGA Tour, Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, Rory McIlroy. Those those guys have all really backed the PGA Tour and they're big stars. If you get a live golf versus PGA Tour, big name down the stretch Sunday final round, I think the ratings will be pretty damn good. Well, it'll be very interesting to watch. Ian O'Connor, New York Post columnist. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Living the Bridge.
Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Find it now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Carol Markowitz. What's on your mind? What is a woman? What should be an easy question to answer is now considered a gotcha on the left. Conservative writer Matt Walsh has produced a documentary with the question as its title, hoping to get to the bottom of it. The film is a cross between Michael Moore's 1989 documentary, Roger and Me, where the filmmaker pursued General Motors CEO Roger Smith, and the Borat movies, in which Sasha Baron Cohen pretends to be clueless journalist Borat Sagariev from Kazakhstan, making films about American culture. Watching Walsh engage with various experts as they make abject fools of themselves has the same cringe-inducing face-covering sensation as Borat getting a bar to sing along with Throw the Jew Down the Well. Except Walsh's subjects haven't been tricked into anything. They really believe what they are saying. Dr. Michelle Forcier, a dean at Brown University Medical School, refuses to concede that there is such a thing as reality and ends up talking about suicidal chickens when Walsh asks her whether we are assigning a gender to a chicken laying an egg. She's not alone. One therapist in Tennessee argues that she can't answer what a woman is because she's not a woman. The twist is that she clearly is a woman. I asked Walsh how he got these people to talk to him on the record. He told me they didn't expect to be challenged. It is inconceivable to them that anyone would expect real answers. One of the few medical professionals in the film who doesn't come off as completely Looney Tunes is Dr. Miriam Grossman. She believes that some number of the population is indeed gender dysphoric and transgender, putting that number in the one in 30,000 to 110,000 range, and says it is important to separate those people who have genuine deep discomfort with their bodies from the recent spike in pubescent kids suddenly coming out as gender fluid or trans. It makes no statistical sense if your middle schooler has three or five or 10 friends who have suddenly become gender non-binary. The numbers don't add up. Yet so much about the current gender bending push makes no sense. Many of us are live and let live, believing there is indeed a tiny segment of the population who are transgender. We'd happily let adults live however makes them happy. But the current moment simply won't allow for that. You will be made to care and conform. And if you don't like leftist gendered ideology pushed on children, you will be deemed a bigot. As Walsh's film shows, this extends far beyond allowing drag queens to, for some reason, read books to children. The Biden administration removed the word mother from health agency communications in favor of birthing person. Women are being erased from culture. Medical professionals won't definitively answer what a woman is. Walsh told me most of what we're told from academia and media is vacuous and not grounded in science or reality. It was scary to watch him prove that right. This is Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to Everyone Talks to Liz. Fox Business's Liz Clayman talks with entrepreneurs and executives about inspiring and motivational stories. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.